this, this is the first step for us in sustainability. We sustain these chains the, and these, these food chains or these supply chains by having great vendor relations, taking care of them, but also supplying them with the best information we can. Relations with the Muslim world and particularly the Middle East has always been based on flawed assumptions. We have always had people in the White House who look at the region in black and white terms. That's culinary expert Jason Wilson and Middle East expert Lawrence Pintak. Jason will be addressing sustainability in the food industry and Lawrence will be addressing instability in the Middle East. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Jason Wilson, culinary director of Fire and Vine Hospitality, is a leader in fine dining both locally and nationally. He received the James Beard Award for Best Chef Northwest and Food and Wine Magazine's Best New Chef in the Puget Sound region. Jason owns a number of restaurants in this area. He spoke to the Downtown Seattle Rotary Club about sustainability. Lawrence Pintak, founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University, has been traveling to the Middle East since 1980 when he was a correspondent for CBS News. He just returned from Pakistan, and I asked him to update us on developments in that region. Lawrence was selected as a fellow to the Society of Professional Journalists for outstanding service to the profession of journalism throughout the Palouse region. Did I get you, Lawrence? I think I did. I hope I did. Let me just go back. He was selected as a fellow of the Society of Professional Journalists for outstanding service to the profession of journalism throughout the world, not just the Palouse. Now we have that straight. I've been asking listeners for the last couple of weeks, what were they doing and what were they thinking when Apollo 11 touched down on the moon on July 20th, 1969? What do you think about the effort now? Was it worth it? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your comments. Now, please limit your reflections to about 45 seconds or so. I want to get as many people on the air as possible. That number is 425-653-1166. Now, what's Voices of Experience all about? I interview people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, special events, with a special emphasis on entrepreneurship. So any of those subjects of interest to you, you found the right place on the dial. Back with Jason Wilson in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Jason Wilson, award-winning chef and industry leader in the culinary world. He was a recent speaker at Seattle's Downtown Rotary Number 4. He's known for his sustainability in the culinary world. Some of his restaurants that he owns include Miller's Guild, Heirloom, The Lake House, and Civility and Unrest. 
Let's pick up his talk when he started talking about sustainability. And what does Jason do at his restaurants to ensure sustainability? We cycle, we use the, you know, the water differently. Um, we actually use cleaning supplies now in three of our restaurants that are all water-based. So having a, a smaller footprint as well as we can with these big restaurants is important to us. But if I, if I can get you to think back to that image of the, your most recent trip to the market, what it really is is how to, ben- how to balance the pinnacle ingredient because we're after the very best. In every one of our restaurants, you're not going to go in and go, ah, oh, that, that peach was just kind of okay. It was brown and I don't know, it probably could have done better. We're looking for the very best. And if it's the butter, if it's the salt, the olive oil, which we have huge commitments to, and all of the produce and, and products that we sell, how do we balance that? And so sometimes what we feel is it's, it's rooted in a definition. And we define the pinnacle ingredient by where it's raised and what season it comes to us at. And that includes beef and fish. Um, how it's reared. So is it organically raised produce? One of the hardest things, um, it's easy to do in your home. One of the hardest things to do in a restaurant is switch 10 restaurants moving next year to, to 12 into full organic produce because we can't get this year in, year out. So now it's working with um, hothouses up into BC and people down into the Monterey Bay area. Um, but that's another piece of the sustainable piece that we're looking at. How can we serve our guests the very best? And then, so when it's reared, how it's, how it's actually coming to us, what season it's coming to. And then when it comes to proteins, we look at how they're, basically how they're called, how, how they come to us. Um, this, this is the first step for us in sustainability. We sustain these chains the, and these, these food chains or these supply chains by having great vendor relations, taking care of them, but also supplying them with the best information we can. But um, so I put on our, our little um, presentation here, functional food and a plan to prevent waste. <clears throat> that plan really is all about you know, how we source, but it's also accepting things that may not be perfect. So go back to that pinnacle ingredient. You're walking this stalls and pike place market and you see cherries this time of year. I was actually eating some on the way over here today. And, and you think about strawberries. When was the last time you cut a strawberry in half and it was red all the way through? The, these two months, it should be happening. But they're not always gonna be perfect. And I think that that's kind of the, the, the eye opener for me was, it's not gonna look perfect. The cauliflower is not gonna be this cellophane head all the time. When we get them from the farmer's market, they're gonna have these little blemishes. We have... Um, three farmers right now that work with our group that, that literally grow. So we, we get together and talk seeds in January. By February, the seeds are in. And by March, they're starting to go in the ground. And so the conversation I've had with all three is, listen, our arugula, our romaine, and all of the things that are green should have holes in it. So you, ah, you're saying yes. So I'm okay with this idea of the, of the product being natural and being real and, and, and showing that it wasn't enclosed in this glass box to grow and mentoring now 12 different executive chefs on how to change that viewpoint. That is the product that you know, we consider arduous work nowadays, but ultimately it comes back to the guests and they say, the story really is about the best product. 
The best products may be that there's a beetle living you know, in and around it, but this is how mother nature intended it. So we may look at this in, in a mention here in a second, we may look at this as actually sourcing the products that are gonna be grown locally and organically first, and then seeing those things that we can't get locally via farmers or via small business men and women here in our area. So we'd really try to locate everything within our closest vicinity as far as sourcing goes. And then we also look, at, look to use things that are maybe imperfect. <clears throat> in the produce world, there's a, an acronym IDP, Imperfect Delicious Produce. So if you, if you think about the amount of pro product that you consume in your house, let's just say in a week, imagine 30% of that was just thrown in the trash as soon as you got home. That's what the perfect produce that we get, that's what happens to it. Nationwide, we're losing this. And we're losing the battle because, in my personal opinion, because we have food shortages in our cities that are not only astronomical, but detrimental. So it's part of the work that we do to be able to support local farms and accept that imperfect produce when at all possible um, really goes to help not only the economies, but it goes back to help the local farmer and source the best product we can get. Um, so supporting local produce and, and productor. Uh, okay, uh, Jeff mentioned coffee flour and I, I think it's, so I think it's important to bring this up. Um, my first restaurant was a fine dining place and then and my wife, Nicole and I had owned it for 10 and a half years. Um, in 2012, a guy I knew from Starbucks came in and said, hey, I've got this bag of brown powder and it looked really illicit and it's from Mexico and I want you to try and make something with it. And my first reaction was laugh like you just did. He told me what it was and, and I was like, how did you get this? So. I mentioned eating cherries, right? Because this time of year, we've all have coffee on our tables, right? This is essentially the juice. It's, it's coffee beans that we know it are the pit of a cherry, the Arabica cherry or Robusta, but it's a, it's a coffee cherry. So the fruit, so imagine eating those delicious Rainier and Bing cherries and you spit the, the, uh, the fruit out and just hold on to the pit. That's what happens with coffee production. So now start elaborate that process a little bit more and you think, well, boy, that's a heck of a lot of fruit to just get those pits. Where, did this, where does this whole thing go? So the, for years now, over 200 years, the fruit was pushed into lakes, into rivers, it was buried. Huge um, bulldozers and, and backhoes will actually dig out and put it in. The fruit is very high in fiber, up to 56% fiber, half of which is soluble fiber, so it's easily digestible. Um, high in, in anti um, antioxidants, but high in acids and in tannins, right? So there is a scant amount of caffeine in the fruit, which is the similar amount that you would have in dark chocolate. So all these things prevent livestock from eating it because they'll just get thinner and they prevent composting because the worms can't get in there. So this, this package of brown powder was uh, a couple of guys went down to Mexico or in the coffee business and found a way to stop the fermentation process as they were, they were harvesting the fruit and dry it naturally. And then they sent it out to a flour mill and brought it into this little powder. So for the next three to four years, I worked uh, really, really closely with these guys developing food products. 
um, cascara lattes, and you have heard this at Starbucks. This product is cascara in, in Turkey. This is where in Yemen, where it first started out. Um, <clears throat> cascara lattes, chocolates through Seattle Chocolate Company. There were crackers that we put up in Canada. Um, we have pizza doughs and, and, and waffles and pancake mix in Japan. <clears throat> Anywhere that we could find coffee and we would turn it then into coffee flour. So I mentioned Crush because th this, is, this is the ultimate smart sourcing, but also sustainable um, process. I mentioned Crush because we, there we were feeding the 1%. And in the Christmas of 2014, I got to go to Nicaragua and experience firsthand teaching the chefs in, in a couple, in a group of cafes, how to cook with this. So how to change their recipes, how to, to bring it. And this is an item that they grew literally 40, 50 miles just behind Managua in the city. So they started to grow there and all the way into the mountains. Nicaragua does amazing coffee. Um, but then I got to see the other part of the business model, which was, the farmers that were farming coffee cherries and harvesting them were getting paid for 70% of the weight. Where's the other 30% go? It's in the fruit. So they're only getting paid for the weight of the pits. Imagine working eight hours a day and only getting paid for 30% of that. That would suck. So we went in and we paid them for 30% at the growing at the going wage. I got to watch as we were giving checks to these people that looked at us and said, that's three months of my year. And that started to make a difference. So we then started to, to look at this process, cleaning up the environment, reusing and, and having a healthy ingredient and putting it out there through this mechanism, through all sorts of food products and said, this is now becoming full circle. So I got back from the trip and promptly told the uh, CEO of Coffee Flower, I'm like, I'm done doing fine dining. I need to do this. So the, the restaurant now is the, the R&D lab for, for Coffee Flower. <clears throat> I know, leap of faith, right? Um, think about food and in, in, in ultimately uh, think about it as medicine. Um, and I'm sure I'm not preaching to the choir here, but I love to do this and I love to have you continue to go back to that trip down Pike Place Market or like I said, in France somewhere. They're out there, those, those, those fruits and vegetables are out there for a reason when they're out there. And the same is true in winter. Those things that are happening in mother nature, those are good for you. That's Jason Wilson, award-winning chef, one of the restaurants when I introduced him uh, was the Civility and Unrest restaurant in Bellevue. I hadn't heard of it. I did look it up, and it says that it uh, serves small plates in Northwest-inspired cocktails. It's located in downtown Bellevue. With a name like that, I'm going to have to check that out. And by the way, it got four out of five stars on Yelp.
I can remember like it was yesterday calling my dad from Cape Kennedy when the Saturn rocket took off of the moon on July 16th, 1969. I was a young staff director for ABC Radio News, and this was my first major assignment. Dad, I yelled into the phone. It was like watching the Empire State Building leave the ground. Wow. And when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon and said, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, it, it felt like science fiction to me. In a way, I wish humanity still had that sense of awe and wonder. We seem to take so much for granted nowadays. I was only a spectator 50 years ago, but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Hey, I still have my first man on the moon memorial stamp proudly displayed. Wondrous. Thank you. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Pintak is my guest, and he's an award-winning journalist and has written about America's complex relationship in the Middle East since 1980. He was the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University and was named a fellow at the Society of Professional Journalists in 2017 for outstanding service to the profession of journalism around the world. He was recently in Seattle. I caught up with him after a trip he made recently to Pakistan. He had a very interesting time getting there when he flew over the flight path after Iran shot down the American drone. So we'll pick up the interview at that point. As I was literally over the Strait of Hormuz, I discovered that there had been this confrontation 12 hours before. But the reality is that isn't unusual because we have so often through history found ourselves in that situation. So are you the one who causes all these problems? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's what I thought. Pakistan, what's the uh, state of affairs in Pakistan now? It's a relatively new government, but the economy is tanking. Uh, obviously, Pakistan is sitting on one side. It has Iran and Afghanistan. On the other side, it has India. Uh, when I was there earlier this year, uh, it was a confrontation between Pakistan and India in, in many, many years over Kashmir. They're trying to reinvent their relationship now with the U.S. Uh, because it went from bad to worse. And they have a strong relationship with China now that they're beginning to question. How is the relationship between Pakistan and the U.S. going right now? The Pakistani prime minister is actually on his way to Washington to meet with Trump and, and do the rounds. And that's a sign of, you know, they're trying to make things a bit better. Um, the military is the power behind the throne. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's not. India and Pakistan, is that something that has been settled for a while going forward, or is that just a tinderbox? It's a tinderbox, um, and it's a tinderbox with nuclear weapons. Both of these countries have nuclear weapons. There is an argument to be made that we could see a kind of Nixon in China scenario, uh, because now you have Modi, the prime minister of India, is a a strong Hindu nationalist, very anti-Muslim, has been accused of being involved in various 
anti-Muslim pogroms, you know, mur massacres. Uh, but there's an, and and the current prime minister of Pakistan, uh, Imran Khan, and he he handled the confrontation with India early this year very well. He didn't escalate it. Uh, he you know didn't back down, but he also was was reaching out trying to find middle ground. So there's an argument that maybe now with this hardline Hindu nationalist in power, he could flip like Ch Nixon being anti-communist and going to China. Uh, he may do that. Your book, you just completed it. It's out now. What are the major features in your book or the guts of it, what you're trying to get across? Yeah, it, it's pegged to the 2016 election and the, the incredible levels of anti-Muslim anti sentiment in that campaign. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where an American presidential candidate and then president um, became so overtly Islamophobic, so overtly anti-Muslim. And I look at this, this twisted and troubled history between America and Islam, dating right back to the revolutionary era. Uh, you had revolutionary era um, ministers like Cotton Mather fulminating against Muslims, as they were called at the time. The fact that the American Navy was created to fight Muslims. It was created to go and fight the Barbary pirates who were Muslims. Um, so our relationship with Islam has been very troubled. And if you look at all of the major events in, in recent history that led to radicalization of Islam, of elements within Islam, all of those can be traced back to policy decisions that were made by the Americans or even further back by the Europeans. Do you have uh, any reason for optimism, pessimism in the circumstances going forward? Um, I've you know covered the Middle East since uh, 1980, and there's never been a reason for optimism. Relations with the Muslim world, and particularly the Middle East, has always been based on flawed assumptions. We have always had people in the White House who look at the region in black and white terms, and looking for you know in a Reagan context, looking for the good guys, the white hats fighting the black hats, and it's never that. We have lots and lots of diplomats and other experts who understand that and who counsel them in other directions, but ultimately it comes down to the White House and ultimately it comes down to simplistic notions of what's going on on the ground. Why do you think that is? I mean, they ignore the intelligence of people who really know what's going on in this particular case, but in others they may listen? Well, unfortunately, in, in few cases have they listened. Um, if, if you look at the disaster of Lebanon, which was the first suicide bombings, etc., uh, that was the Reagan administration seeing Christian government good, Muslims bad, where the, the, uh, the uh, American diplomats on the ground were saying, no, there's all sorts of nuance here. There are no good guys and bad guys. It's, it's easy from Washington to posit policies in those kind of simplistic notions. Because if you, if you posit them in the more complex notions, then it's harder to see results. It's harder to create immediate policy responses. Um, if we know that in, in Iraq, if we support, if we overthrow Saddam Hussein and the, the Iranians are going to grow their influence in Iraq, uh, and then all these factions are going to arise. Well, how do we deal with these factions? It all becomes too complicated in, in the sense of an American politician. And that ultimately has been our problem.
armchair quarterbacks, so to speak, like me and other people who talk about, let's say, the Middle East, they say it's all about oil. No, it's not all about oil. Um, oil is a factor. Um, certainly 30, 40, 50 years ago, even longer, it was a factor. I mean, our current confrontation with Iran is there is a direct line between this confrontation and the fact that in the 50s, the CIA and British intelligence basically overthrew a, a democratic government in Iran to reinstall the power of the Shah. And that was all over oil because that government was trying to nationalize oil. Um, so yes, oil has been a factor. Our relationship now terribly flawed, twisted relationship with the Saudis is based on oil in, in large measure. Now Trump thinks we're, we're doing deals with them, and so it's based on other kinds of money or, or supposed money. But there are a lot of other factors going on in the Middle East. I mean, there is the, the fundamental Sunni-Shia divide represented by Iran on one side and the Saudis and the Gulf states on the other. There's, there's progressives versus authoritarians. There's military versus Democrats, etc., etc. So the Middle, the Middle East is a very, very complicated place, and there are no simplistic answers, and there are no good guys and bad guys. Did you think, like, let's say President Obama, when he had a foreign policy that says, let's just get, get to the, through the next 10 years, not try to have something overreaching, try to solve a problem that would take us through the next century? Do you think that was a good strategy in the Middle East? Well, I think Obama's strategy was more nuanced than most, um, but ultimately it was when the Arab Spring occurred, 2010, 2011, it was Democrats good. And, you know, we see what happened with that. That failed. Uh, I think one of his fundamental errors was drawing a line in the sand in Syria, saying that if the Syrian government uses chemical weapons, we will step in. And then that happened, and they didn't. That's Lawrence Pintak, the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. His book is called America and Islam, Soundbites, Suicide Bombs, and the Road to Donald Trump. It is available on Amazon. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to Jason Wilson, Lawrence Pintak, and Frank Farino for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Throughout the month of July, I will continue to ask listeners, what were you doing and what were you thinking when Apollo 11 touched down on the moon on July 20th, 1969? Was the effort worth it? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your comments. Please leave your reflections to about 45 seconds or so. I want to get as many people on the air as possible. That number is 425-653-1166. Voices of Experience will return next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. and then will be repeated Friday at 1.30 p.m. So if you missed any part of this show, you can pick it up at 1.30 p.m. Friday right here on KKNW. If you want to hear any of Voices of Experience shows for the last couple of years, Google KKNW, then click on to Podcast, and then click on to Voices of Experience, and you will be there. Before I go, I must call this out. Congratulations to Edgar Martinez for his induction to Baseball's Hall of Fame over the weekend. I mean this sincerely when I say, this 
could not have happened to a nicer guy. He also had some talent to go along with that as well. Have a great rest of the week or weekend, depending on when you're listening to the show.